This is Laura McHugh, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me in the co-host seat today, all the way from New Jersey, USA, is Kate Holohan. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for having me, Eric. Well, Kate is the author of One Little Secret, Lies She Told, Dark Turns, The Widower's Wife, and her latest, Her Three Lives. And Kate, we just met recently, but uh, I, I believe in laying it out on the table. I am brand new to your work. I have a lot of catching up to do. I don't feel bad about this because I know for certain that you have not read a single word of any of my books either. So I, I feel like we're on equal footing here. That's right. Um, but I did appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me at that noir at the bar. I thought it was great. And um, and I, I brought wine. I thought everybody was going to. I thought it was, a you know, a virtual bar. <laughs> yeah, you did it right. You, you get it. That, that's why I wanted you as my co-host. I was like, oh, she understands how this works. <laughs> Uh, but so speaking of just having a hard time getting to everything that you want to read, there's just there's too many books, right? Yeah, there is. And then also we have um, you know, a lot of our job is we read friends books. We read other books that are by our publishers. We blur books. And so uh, and then we have to somehow fit in time to write our own books. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I don't know how you do this, but. I have a real hard time reading other people while I'm currently writing because, you know, if someone's really great, their voice starts to slip into your head and the characters start to slip into your head. And I don't want to unconsciously, you know, start appropriating any of this of other characters that I think are great. So I kind of write in, um, you know, in like a cone of silence in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that's smart. Yeah, I think it ha it, it happens whether you are aware of it or not. And I've I've done that thing where like I'll I'll read a book and get so inspired by a, a certain style that that is different than my own, right. and then that makes me think like oh I I, I want to try something that's that's a little different and, and it's, it starts your mind reeling. And then I've I've done that a couple of times where I start to get into something and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, that, that's not my voice. I, that's just not how I write. <laughs> the, right. This book would have been great if that person wrote it, but no. <laughs> I've done yeah. that too. I once had it where this book did never saw the light of day, but I was very inspired by Virginia Woolf's The Waves. And I, I clearly let that go into a mystery and it didn't work. <laughs> it <was like> <laughs> Well, you seem to love writing about secrets and lies in what seems to be, I think, the dominant genre now in crime fiction, which is what they call psychological suspense. You know, that's feels like such an industry term that, that the publishers sort of place on things. Do you think that that's a fair description of your work? I do. You know, I think I, I, The Widower's Wife has a detective. So, um, I mean, it's not that I don't have any books that, that have detectives, but I think I like it when you kind of can't tell, um, even if the point of view characters are necessarily the good guys. Mm. And so I think that's kind of a defining characteristic of psychological suspense is at, at any point your protagonist could possibly be your antagonist. And so there's this discomfort reading it, this little like feeling of being off balance and, and you kind of have to write two stories at once. You're writing a story and then meanwhile you're slipping in all this information that maybe uh, shows that your point of view character isn't interpreting the world exactly you know the way they should be 
the tension and the challenge is that your characters aren't always the most likable because <laughs> they have to be pretty flawed in order for them to potentially have been, you know, the bad actor to begin with. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to a lot of my books where you start out right on page one and you know this is not the hero of the story because you just, you know, <laughs> shot a guy in the head. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You either jump in with both feet or, or you try, try to blur the lines a little bit. Right. <laughs> well, uh, your latest Her Three Lives begins with the home invasion. So right away, you're drawing on any homeowner's fears. And then you get into this distrust between husband and wife. So that draws on a whole different set of fears. And a I can't help thinking in a way I'd almost rather my home got broken into than if I found out my wife is not who I think she is. That's true. I think also one of the tensions in this book was all the technology because the Mm. husband in an effort to secure his home kind of outfits it with all these nest cams and um, doorbell ring cams that we all have. And he just starts obsessively watching it because he's been the victim of this horrible thing and he, he got very injured And then it's through kind of interpreting the information through the cameras that he starts to doubt uh, that his fiance is really who she says she is, which I I wanted to play with because I um, have these cameras all over my house. And I noticed that I was inadvertently spying on my children. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I had them since since they were little and, you know, they needed that kind of, oh, if they woke up in the middle of the night, you wanted to make sure they didn't stumble down the stairs or something. But I kind of left them up. They became the furniture of the house. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I found myself, they would argue and I go, wait a second, I can go to the tape. I can see, you know, it's safe for seven (laughs) days. What what are you saying? She left it when? Wednesday? And I realized that has to be like horribly psychologically damaging to just sit there and feel like your mom, like big brother is just watching your every move. (laughs) No wonder they wanted to go to camp so badly. (laughs) (laughs) I assume that I'm going to assume that you live a life of domestic bliss. You're happily married, two kids, things seem to be going well. What compels you to think about all the ways that this could go wrong and then put it in a novel? Anxiety. I have an anxiety disorder. Don't most writers? (laughs) Undiagnosed or not. Yes. I I mean, especially writers in our genre where we're constantly going, huh, how could that go terribly wrong? Like that's, I feel like that's how we're wired. I I came back from a Disney cruise and I just, it was, I'm I'm not a cruise person. I should never be locked on a ship where I can't escape. And all I could think about were, you know, how you would escape this ship and what happened. And that became the widower's wife where like she jumps off a cruise ship (laughs) or is pushed or, you know, but it all came from like, that I couldn't even enjoy myself on a cruise. I had to. (laughs) I had to be thinking of how I would swim to Cuba if things really went, if things really went wrong. You know? Gosh. All right. Well, so like I mentioned, we all, we only recently met. So I'm assuming that I'm getting one version of Kate. And like in her three lives, I know there are more. How long do I have to know you before I get the more, let's say, real version of Kate? Or are you pretty open from the start? Yeah. You know, I mean... Culturally, I'm half Jamaican and half Irish, and I think Jamaicans are known to kind of just be like, "Hey, like, like it's it's actually it's not a very like secrets and lies culture. It's a mm-hmm. it's kind of like, oh, this is who I am, and take it or leave it. Um, you know. So I think I'm usually pretty much the same person. I'm I can be intense when a 
when I'm working. But I think I, I think like a lot of writers, we all have an introvert side and an extrovert side. And the introvert is that we can sit in front of a computer and kind of be in our own head for six to eight hours, you know? Yeah. But, um, but then when we are like released, <laughs> it's like a spring. <laughs> yeah. I think writing attracts certain personality types, right? Cause if, sure. if you were, if you were a total extrovert, how could you just be by yourself for that long and just write? Unless yeah. maybe you're schizophrenic and then you really think the characters are keeping you company. But <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, it's time for our first guest. What do you say? All right. That sounds wonderful. All right. Well, uh, I'm sorry you missed it, but uh, I spoke with Tracy Clark, author of the Cass Reigns series. The latest book, Runner, is just out now, and it's another of her hard-boiled PI stories that are really welcome additions to a long tradition in crime fiction with the, the hard-boiled P.I. Tracy really fits right into what I think is the top ranks of the P.I. novels with this series. These are set in Chicago, where she's from, and that becomes a major part of the atmosphere of these books. Uh, and I, I get from your books, you, you tend to jump around locations a little bit. You're not uh, always writing about your uh, home state in New Jersey. Is that uh, something you, you like to explore different locations, different uh, vibes for each book? I do. I mean, I, I like to explore class tensions. So I think I often pick places where there is a lot of affluence juxtaposed with, you know, not exactly poverty, but more working class where people are struggling. And uh -huh. so I think that the Northeast, Northeastern locations lend themselves to that because you have suburbs and cities where there's, you know, extreme wealth. And then also people that are, you know, really trying hard to, to make it. So that's kind of the, what appeals to me in a location. Probably, it, it never gets old. Talking about your book, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's, it's always a little strange uh, talking about a book that's that's brand new release, but you're like, yeah, I wrote that thing like a year and a half ago. <laughs> and you have to sort of try to remember. Uh, uh, yeah, I think yeah. I remember it. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> So we'll see how I do. First question. Do you remember <laughs> what Runner is about? Absolutely not. <laughs> well, when I first cracked open Runner, I was immediately struck by the voice, which I'm, I'm going to say, I think it's pretty kind of old school, hard boiled in, in a lot of ways, which mm -hmm. I, I really dug. I, I want to know, I mean, did this voice, does this come naturally to you? Is this sort of you know your your natural uh, way of of writing and stuff, or did you really have to work sort of get into Cass Rain's voice? Two things. Um, first, the voice sort of popped up into my head uh, around the age of t 12, 13, when I actually knew that this was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book. I wanted to write a book like the books that I enjoyed reading. Um, series, uh, female PIs, uh, that great wave of crime writers around the early part of the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to write that. I knew that's what I wanted. And then this voice sort of popped up in my head as I was sort of fishing around for a character and she wouldn't go away. It took that amount of time to sort of actually get to the point where I actually started to write. I was just reading at that point and sort of having a passion for wanting to do it, uh, but not knowing how to do it, uh, not knowing where to start like most new writers are. Yeah. Um, so, But I got to that point where I'm going to sit down, I'm going to try it see if I can come up with something that has my own sort of spin on it. That was the voice that was in my head. So I had that. I was then just sort of uh, trying to sort of teach myself how to tell a story from beginning to middle to end. Yeah. Uh, and that took uh, quite a few years 
beyond that point. But the voice sort of popped up there. Um, she came, luckily, with a couple of other people uh, along for the ride. That's good. So I had that sort of mini cast of people. Yeah. Uh, I liked the noir movies, uh, Sam Spade, Maltese Falcon. So I had all of that stuff uh, sort of going for me. Um, so I sort of knew the pattern of what the story should look like, uh, yeah. how it should sort of pace itself out. Probably the easiest uh, form of genre fiction to write uh, because it starts uh, where your client starts and it goes to the end uh, when you're sort of running for your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shooting it, shooting it out in the alley somewhere. I mean, it's pretty easy to sort of follow that uh, that path. Yeah, well, that's that's wild. I mean, that, that's a that's a pretty young start uh, to to have well, that voice pop up for you. Yeah, well, I was a weird kid. I mean, I was that kid. <laughs> I was that kid who always had a book on them somewhere. I was that kid who had a little notebook with little stories and little pictures in it somewhere on my person. Um, so I sort of always knew I wanted to do it. Uh, but then, of course, you know, I'm a little black kid from the south side of Chicago. I don't know any writers. No writer knows me. I'm just reading. Stuff. Yeah. I'm just reading, 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 reading. Agatha Christie, Nancy Drew, all the rest of that. And sort of wishing that I could do that, too. So it took several decades before I could actually work up the courage to sort of sit down in front of a piece of paper and a laptop and try to, try to sort of mash this thing out and see what I could come up with. Oh, not that long. You're only 18, oh, no, no, right? No, no. Oh, I wish. <laughs> I'm an overnight success that took like 20 years, some odd years to get from that phase to my book, uh, my name on a book cover. So uh, it took quite a while. Well, is is that path uh, then littered with uh, you know, false starts, abandoned oh, yeah. manuscripts, characters that didn't stick? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, all of that. Uh, piles of rejection letters, uh, query letters that uh, came back uh, with rejections like two days later they couldn't possibly have read the whole thing <laughs> you know the, uh, discouraging but you sort of have to go through that process i guess uh when that first book wouldn't sell i said you know whatever i'm just going to start writing again i'm going to write another one uh when that one didn't go anywhere i wrote another one um and, but all of that uh, those three tries were education uh sort of refining and sort of learning how to sort of tell a complete story and a story that readers might like enjoyed reading um yeah. so i just kept going i just didn't stop wow well okay this isn't you're inspiring me because i'm i'm in that quagmire now where i'm, I'm uh, floating without an agent i don't have a book deal right now it, it i feel like everything that happened previous kind of doesn't matter i'm starting over from square one and uh-huh. but but this is inspiring okay this is this is a good thing Thinking back to when I first met you in Chicago, I think I I think Broken Places had just come out. Yep, Murder and, and Mayhem, right? Yeah, and, and yeah, then, yeah. I mean, here we are. You know, four bucks later. I mean, you've won or been nominated for nearly every major crime writing award. So take that, all those agents re- who rejected you and the <laughs> publishers who said no. Take that. <laughs> and I mean, Cass Rains, I think, has joined the pantheon of great Chicago PIs. So I, I mean, I want to know this. Who are you more proud of, yourself or Cass? Well, first of all, I think I've just been tremendously lucky. Uh, I think I sort of hit at the right time. Um, I think all those years when you sort of look back and you didn't get what you thought you wanted, and you have sort of have to wait for your time. Uh, yeah. That wasn't my time. This is my time. Um, the rewards and the nominations are fantastic. Uh, actually, I knew very little about the business of fiction writing when I started or when I actually got here into the community. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know there were awards. Um, <laughs> my head was my head was so far down. 
uh, onto the page and the laptop and sort of refining and sort of making this character and this these stories sort of jump off the page. I had no idea. I had no idea there was a Balshakan. I had no idea there were lefties or uh, Seamuses or anything like that. I was just, oh, really? Oh, I got nominated? That's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> wish I would have, <laughs> you know, but I just sort of wandered into it. I mean, um, I sort of concentrated on the craft. Um, I knew that I there was something that I did not know that I needed to know. And I have to sort of work my way through until I actually found what that thing is, that missing element. And then I was off to the races. And it happened when it was supposed to happen. And it will happen for you when it's supposed to happen. Oh. And it will happen for every writer out there when it's supposed to happen for them. Nice. All right. I, this is incredibly inspiring. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Don't give up. Keep on it, Eric. <laughs> well, and, and I, I admire the 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 purity of which you began and, and, you know, yeah. Cause I think if, if you're, if you said about writing books for either money or fame, <laughs> you're, you're in the wrong business. Point. Yeah. You're in the way you're in the wrong business. You can have to do it for the love of it. I mean, yeah. if, you're not, if you're looking to be Stephen King or somebody like that, you can just forget it because yeah. uh, there's only one. Uh, he's taken that, that, that market and you have to find what your voice is and, and do what you do. So yeah. uh, you have to be in it for the love of it. When you take on a serious character like this and you know going in that they're going to grow, they're going to evolve over a number of books, uh, mm-hmm. and you also tie your books so closely to the city of Chicago. Have you find yourself also having to adapt to a changing city as well? Yeah, because every city changes. Um, um, it sort of uh, has its history and it has the people who have made that history and are living in the place. Uh, but everything is changing. Life is changing. Um, so as things sort of pop up, uh, I think recently the thing that I'm sort of wrestling with now is the Black Lives Matter movement and this sort of uh, disconnect between uh, the police department, uh, Chicago Police Department, and other uh, police departments all over the country. Mm-hmm. This disconnect between them and black and brown communities. And you cannot write contemporary crime fiction and sort of ignore those two factors. Uh, you have to sort of bring it in in some kind of way. Yeah. And that's constantly shifting and constantly changing. And uh, you sort of bring in as much as you can or sort of work it into whatever story you're telling as much as you can, um, not to sort of preach or, you know, sort of put your agenda out there, but to sort of hold a mirror up. Uh, but some things stay the same. The neighborhoods are still here. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those old timers are still in the neighborhoods. Um, some of them have been replaced uh, by new people. But uh, And then there's clashes with that. Um, but that's every big city. Um, Chicago's no different. Uh, and all of it is uh, energy and rocket fuel for plots and stories and characters. Well, uh, you mentioned in your bio, and, and you briefly alluded to it uh, earlier, something that I, I can't let go untouched because now you're talking about my world, is you love a good old black and white movie. Love it. Uh, love it. So are, are you uh, kind of across genres? You, you'll take anything as long as it's good? Are you just uh, just the noir and the crime stuff? What, what's, your, kinda, what's your bag? Well, I kind of like all of them. Of course, the Sam Spade, Maltese Falcon, Nick and Nora Charles. I love those Thin Man series. Yeah. Uh, I love those. I like the old Charlie Chan and Sherlock Holmes uh, serials. I like that. Um, I got, also like the comedies. Uh, I like musicals. Uh, I like it all. I mean, it's all great. Nice. Uh, see, we can hang out. Yep. Next, next time I'm in Chicago. Next time you're in Chicago, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, I'm not going to stay with my sister, so I'm going to come crash on your couch. <laughs> Perfectly fine. 
<laughs> yeah, this, uh, the, the only trouble with the with my camera here is it, it faces my my book wall here, and no one can see because when I'm sitting, and this is where I write. Uh, so my entire walls in my office, I, I stare at nothing but film noir movie posters. Ah, okay, inspiration. So, I, when I'm writing, I look out my window through the blinds, and I can see my neighbor's back room. Although it got kind of interesting uh, about a year ago when I saw the uh, FBI jackets sort of go by my window. What? Yeah, that's what I said. What? So I'm sitting here writing cast as I normally do on every day. And I see this rush of activity past the window and this bumping, this pounding on their fence. And I say, what the, is going on? Of course, the laptop is forgotten. And I get up, <laughs> I get up to the window, and it's an FBI raid. Wow. That was my best day in a long time. I just sort of <laughs> sit there at the window. I'm taking notes. How many people are there? Uh, who's got the battering ram? Uh, what are they looking for? And um, they sort of took, um, they, there were cars parked in her backyard for some weird reason. Uh, they were all the same color, white. Maybox, Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, that's oh. what I'm thinking. So anyway, uh, all those cars are gone. And then she sort of disappears for a couple of months. And then she now she's back. And uh, I'm paying really close attention to the back <laughs> of her house uh, to see what else will happen. Wow. That's, yeah, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I've, it's funny. I have uh, on either side of me, my neighbors are retired cops. So oh, I, I, I always feel like if I ever have a question, I just go knock on their door. Knock on the door. <laughs> and a cup of coffee. Like, hello. Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily, you know, I've got the cops in my family. So whenever I get stuck uh, and I'm not sure how things are supposed to go, um, who gets to a crime scene first, uh, who touches the body first, uh, who doesn't touch it, uh, which is almost as, as important. I just sort of uh, text or call. And so it's good to sort of have that avenue where you can sort of check just before you do it yeah. and go on and, and proceed. So just so you don't make any major faux pas that readers are going to sort of come back six months later and say, ha ha. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and they will. Oh, they will. They will. <laughs> well, all right, Tracy, thank you for joining me. Congratulations on runner. It's, it's another winner. I mean, cast really is a, a, a great addition to the PI legacy. And, uh, and like I say, your, your voice is, is dead on old school, hard boiled. You have, it's clear you've done the research and it's clear this is a genre that, that you love and that comes across on the page. So uh, looking forward to many more adventures with Cass and uh, congratulations. Thanks, Eric. Had fun. All right, well, next it's time to get a book review. Uh, but before I go to my two reviewers, uh, Kate, have you read anything good lately that we should know about? Yes, so I read uh, Liv Constantine's latest, The Stranger in the Mirror, actually comes out, I believe, uh, first week of July, July nice. 6th or 7th. It was, it was so great to get an early look at it. Um, you know, she's always, she's like the master of the, the twist that you just cannot see coming. And <laughs> I love that because, you know, we read a lot of the, these books. And so it's hard to surprise a, a oh, thriller yeah. writer. You know, we're yes. always kind of like, what's well, what she's going to drop, you know, or this is a red herring. I think I recognize that. And so it's great to be surprised. And, and she just does that so well. That's fantastic. And uh, Liv Constantine, I've had one half of the writing team because uh, it's, it's no secret, no spoilers, but that is, it's, it is two people writing yeah. these books. Uh, and is this, have you ever co-written anything? Uh, yeah. So actually I have a book coming out next year. It's Audible that I co-wrote with um, Vanessa Lilly, Kimberly Bell and Elaine Fargo. And so oh, wow. it's called Young Rich Widows. And we each took a character. It's four main points of view. And we tell a 
like a 1980s legal thriller mob story, which was so different for, I think, all of us. And the collaboration was great because, you know, so much so often as writers, we we pen something and then we kind of send it off to an agent or an editor and we have to wait to hear comments. And this was all real time. You know, like you sent your chapter and somebody was back to you with notes and it was, it was thrilling that way. It was the closest I think I've ever come to like a writer's room. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's uh, four people. That's, I would think that would be tricky to navigate. It was great. I mean, I was a little nervous when they suggested it because I was like, well, we've, none of us have ever done this, but it was, it was fantastic. And I think because everybody was owning their own character. You didn't have to worry about like creating a voice that somehow covered all of you guys. Each one person got to lend their unique voice to it. And so that was, that was great. Kate, you convinced me. Uh, let's do it. All right. I, I agree. I will co-write a book with you. <laughs> you, that you. That's what you were asking, right? Is that, <laughs> that's, you... Yes. The roundabout way. <laughs> okay. <great. laughs> well, it's time once again for She Said, She Said, where I give one book to two reviewers and we hear what they thought of it. So joining me again is Lauren O'Brien, prodigious reader and reviewer and mom to a truly spoiled dog. <laughs> And also my sister Gretchen, who uh, once had a pet rat. Welcome to you both. I, I also have a very spoiled dog, so yes, I'm well, on that one. You, you've had a list of very, very spoiled dogs that goes on more than we have time for, yeah, Gretchen. Yeah. Oh, I think this room, this virtual room, is full of people like that. Actually, Eric. <laughs> But so, okay, so you guys both read a a book called In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife by Ashley Winstead. This is a psychological thriller told in dual timelines following six friends at their 10-year college reunion, forced to confront a murder of their best friend 10 years prior. This was a fantastic title, which immediately drew me to this. And one of those titles that I almost fear the book cannot live up to (laughs) the promise that, that this gives me. Uh, but let's find out if it did. Uh, Lauren, you go first. What did you think of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife? Well, you know, I was so excited to read this. Part of it was the title and awesome cover. And I appreciate the title because you can relate it to the book. Sometimes you're going, you know, how did that book get that title? But this title was spot on. How to talk about it without spoilers. It was really good. Um, (laughs) She obviously goes back. This woman who is our main narrator has and extremely had during her college years this um, self-esteem problem that stemmed from her father issues, which is also a prevalent theme in the book with more than one character. Mm -hmm. And she never thought she was good enough for both the college she went to and her friends. So in the 10 years since the murder and graduation and before the reunion, she has kind of remade herself. So her whole thing is, I need to get back to this reunion and show everybody now how glamorous I am and how successful I am and how I really am that person that was like them and could have been one of them. Yes. Oh, that's the dream of of reunions, isn't it? Kind (laughs) of. Rub it in everyone's face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, then the murder kind of rears its ugly historical head and everybody then kind of flashes back to revisit what happened 10 years ago. And that's kind of how the story is told both present time at the reunion as things come to a head and then flashing back to 
their college years, all four of them, I think, Gretchen, yes? Yeah, I think I'd hit yeah. on all four. And how they all got to know each other and their relationships and then the murder and its aftermath. Yeah. And the murder had, had never been solved. And so when they come back, so the younger brother of the woman who'd been murdered, I think he was a freshman when they were all seniors. So he had just so. started at the school. And so he graduates from the school, but now he's working at the school. So he is kind of making it his mission. So he's planning this reunion and he's kind of making it his mission that when they all come back together, because he's convinced that one of the friends knows something, either did the murder or knows something, or, you know, there's information that he can help get the murder solved that has been hanging over his family all the, for these 10 years. So it's it's a murder mystery, but it sounds like it's not a very traditional murder mystery with uh, with, with these dual timelines, the, these multiple, uh, is it multiple narrators? Is, does each of these six friends uh, take a turn narrating this thing? I think it's mostly her, but I think a couple of others I chime in we, every now and then with yeah. their perspective. It's not a, yeah. a normal I, or recurring yeah, thing. Get, but. Yeah, when you get tied to the the flashback stuff, then the other characters start kind of chiming in at the end and you get it from their perspective. So you do start to kind of figure out, you know, what really happened, who was where everybody kind of has these secrets that come out, you know, they're this group of best friends, but they all, you know, hit a lot of stuff from each other, you know, during college, you know, during college, you're trying to figure yourself out. And like Lauren was saying, the main character never, kind of felt like she was good enough and was always trying to live up to this. But yeah, so, you know, you had some really wealthy people. You had, you know, uh, people in this sorority Greek system was a really big theme um, because, again, Southern school and trying to be, you know, in the best house and just so much striving. It was part of it was kind of exhausting. It was I was glad to be what years and years past that. I'm no kidding. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't think I could handle college today with all that. But Well, so it sounds like uh, it, it was fairly relatable for you both with, with these uh, with these characters. That's always a good uh, a good hook into a book is if you, you can relate to the characters, right? Yeah, I thought yeah. her character work was was really good. As, as Gretchen was mentioning, you know, some of the themes are kind of ever present, especially if you're in a small, well-to-do college with a strong Greek system. Um, and those could at times be a little heavy handed, but then sometimes she would write something that was just so profound. I marked this um, passage with a bunch of stuff. Um, <laughs> and back when our narrator is in fourth grade and there's this one teacher that just makes her feel so special and like she really does know what she's doing and she's smart and then they go to go on i think it's like a, a field trip and they're a, a kid short yeah. and long story short it turns out to be her and the teacher didn't even realize that she was missing Oh. And when it came time to, you know, oh, so-and-so has been sitting, you know, in your office for three hours. And she's like, who? She didn't even recognize her name or know she was, was missing. And it, I think that just cuts to the core of all our little inner fourth graders. right? <laughs> <laughs> so it was this interesting mix of overwrought college and daddy and wealth stuff. And then these little quiet moments that were really gut-wrenching. Well, so the 
overarching uh, mystery of it and, and figuring out this this murder was that uh, tension throughout the whole thing that kept you turning pages is that, that that's always the the trick for me when you have something that is you know following solving a single murder does it sustain for you know 300 plus pages or, or does it start to lose steam along the way I thought it did because really everybody could have done it. And again, as some of these secrets are revealed and some of these things that had just been, you know, happened 10 years ago that have just been festering come to light, you're like, oh yeah, like you could have done it or you would have maybe had a reason to do it. And then, you know, as somebody, they think, oh, it could be them. And then it turns out, no, maybe it's not them, but you're, you know, kind of keep going and going. But again, everybody, I thought she did a pretty good job of making everybody seem plausible that they could have done it. And I did like, I, I don't want to say it was twisty, but I did like the reveal at the end when you finally do figure out who the killer was. Cause I was like, Oh man. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. It, it was so complex. Probably there were so many different threads to pull together at the end. I thought she did a really good job and the end was, you know, as plausible as a group of six friends, all of whom could be a murder suspect can be. <laughs> Makes you rethink your friend group. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife by Ashley Winstead. Uh, sounds like this this one gets a recommendation from uh, both you guys. That, that's, that's good to hear. We always like to send people off with uh, something else that they should pick up. And uh, I, before we sign off, I just want to say, uh, Lauren, I, I'm, I'm so impressed that uh, you just let it go by and you had zero follow-ups to the revelation that Gretchen uh, once had a pet rat. You just sort of let that go. Oh, we've talked about that rat forever because <laughs> we used to have pet rats. Yeah, Lauren, <laughs> we have a big rat connection. Yes, come on. Yeah, swing and a miss, Eric Beatner. <laughs> See, this is a perfect example. Again, you might think you know people for many years, but there are secrets even among the people that you know best. We're four rats ahead of you. (laughs) Well, my next guest today is Morgan Cry, which is the pen name of Gordon Brown, a Scottish crime writer and the co-founder of the Bloody Scotland Crime Festival. As Morgan Cry, he's written what he calls his expat book. 31 Bones takes place on the Spanish Mediterranean coast, and despite the sun and the beaches, it is a dark ride indeed. Uh, Kate, I think we got a little taste of this when uh, you're talking about jumping off a cruise ship, but it sounds like when you go on vacation, you can't turn off the writer's brain and just enjoy being in the moment. Is that right? No, yeah, it's a it's a horrible failing of mine in that I don't think I ever live in the moment. And I've tried meditation. It doesn't work. I just come up with other stories and that I'm looking for a notebook in like yeah. the middle of yoga. You know, so. Does this bother your, your husband and your kids? Are they sort of like, mom, mom, wait, what, what's, what, you're zoned out again. I, I think, you know, it must, but you get what you get and you don't get upset. So. <laughs> <laughs> that that is a classic mom phrase. That is, it is. <laughs> Your kids are still pretty young, aren't they? Uh, they are. They are nine and eleven. But you know, I'm starting to enter where they're going. They're you know getting to pre preteens, and they like proving me wrong uh-huh. constantly. So I mean, that's good. I give them a lot of joy because I'm not often right. So. They- <laughs> <laughs> Well, 
Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time uh, and, and figuring out the, the time zones. I've had more than one interview that's uh, gone off the rails because uh, no one can figure out how time works. <laughs> recently, I've been, I was in America quite a bit. Recently, I, my, my day job or what was my old day job had me in and out of the States once, twice a month. And it could oh, wow. be Midwest, it could be the West Coast, it could be New York, or it could be more than one in one go. And I got so good at working out what time it was where, because daft things you don't think of, like, for instance, killing your phone because it's the middle of the night where you are, but everybody's up over here, and you get three o'clock in the morning, your phone goes off, and people say, right, I've got this question for you, and you're like, whoa, hang on. <laughs> it's three in the morning. Was this job your your job as a, a radio DJ? Because that's what I'm intrigued with, and, and I'm expecting great things from uh, your vocal presence today in this interview. <laughs> Radio DJ in Scotland, remember. So as a result, West Coast of Scotland, Glasgow accent comes with the radio DJ bit. So that that is one thing that I'm always curious about because Scotland is such a small geographical area and yet the accents can be so varied. It's one of the mysteries of the UK and Scotland. If you go 40 miles, literally 40 miles and the accent will flip to the East Coast and then you go another 20 over the water, it will change again, go another 50, it will change again. All right. Well, I, I'm glad I have you here today. Uh, so first thing we need to establish is, uh, do I call you Morgan in celebration yeah. of this new book, 31 Bones, or should I address you as Gordon Brown, uh, the, the name that we've come to know over your previous books? I, I struggle with this as well. So I, I, I usually answer to both. So <laughs> I think from a marketing perspective, I think the guys would prefer Morgan, but that just feels a bit odd because... I'll t- it's my father's name. Ah. I'll tell you, there is a story behind that which makes it even more awkward. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, let us have it. We like awkward stories here on this show. Oh, no. So what happened was uh, I'd written seven books and I was coming to do this one. And I said to my agent, I've got an idea, but it's not connected to anything I've done before. And I said, look, why don't we try a new name? And they agreed. And then I thought, well, what am I going to call myself? Like, what do you call yourself? Like, really, it's like, it's like, it's like being allowed to call yourself something when you're born. It's like, right. if, if you had a choice, you'd never get there. Like, you know, <laughs> your mum and dad call you something, you go, fine, that's me. You call yourself. So I had, uh, it's, I was going to call myself um, Morgan James. And Morgan is my father's name. And James is my middle name. But uh, they decided they didn't like James and cry they liked because it sounds kind of crimey, you know, a bit of crime to it. But the Morgan part, the reason it's awkward, it's also the name of my youngest brother. Yeah. Ah. I had to phone him up and say, excuse me, Morg, but I kind of want to use your name for the books. And Morg was, what? But it was one of those moments where I thought, well, I've already told the publisher and they've already agreed it. I'm now going (laughs) to... I'm now going to fall out with my brother over changing my name, but he's been fine with it. Well, that's good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been debating that myself because uh, I mean, it, it's it's as I suspected that you saw this book as a bit of an outlier with your other work. And so you yeah. felt like it, the need to, to identify it differently. Uh, and so that book, 31 Bones, it's, it's set along the Spanish Mediterranean coast uh, which is different from uh, what you've become known for, which is uh, you know the so-called tartan noir, uh, th- yeah. these thrillers, as as you say. Uh, so, 
was it intentional that you wanted to take a different uh, geographical location, a different a different tack, or did, did the idea just pop up and it all spilled out from there? No, it's a it's a bit it's a bit strange. My first two books I ever wrote were straight out Scottish crime fiction, tart noir, and then I did a third book for America in the same vein, same area. Then I kind of moved away a little bit to US thrillers, which I may go back to. I don't know at this stage, but when I wanted to change it, actually. It's the book I've written in Spain is more akin to the books I wrote in Scotland than anything mm. else. Partly because the, the idea came from two places. The, the, the first one was I was definitely looking for something new and fresh and different. Just something I quite like to get my teeth into something new. And I'm fortunate enough to, to own a small apartment in the Medic, Mediterranean coast in Spain in a, in a mm. town called Javia. The town in 31 Bones is called El Descaro. But really, it's Javier. I don't know if you know much. It's one of those things that I some people know something about and, and some people don't. Is Have you heard of a phrase called the Costa del Crime? Oh, I, I, think, I feel like I have a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's, it's new to us in America, at least. Yeah. So, so what happened is the UK and Spain, Spain is, think of the Caribbean to US in terms of the West Coast going on holiday. Loads of people go down to the Caribbean. In the UK, Spain gets about 19 million visits a year before COVID. Lots of Brits go there. And a very good working relationship. We've had some fallouts of bits of land, but we've got a good working relationship. But one of the things that happened was there was a very old treaty agreed in the 1800s that said, if you've got a bad guy, it's a criminal, we can send him to you. You can extradition treaty. Well, it lapsed. In the 80s, it lapsed. And the Spanish wouldn't renew it, and neither would the British. So for a very short period of time in the late 70s, early 80s, criminals in Britain who didn't want to get caught got on a plane and flew to Spain. Everybody from the great train robbers to murderers to pimps to arsonists, you name it, flew out to Spain and made home there because they couldn't be sent back. And the other reason they did it is a lot of Spain, because Brits have been there, will have British bars. It's the, the mm. Spanish are very good at speaking English. It's hot and sunny all the time. The beer's cheap. So as a British criminal, you were like, well, why would I go home? <laughs> what I wanted to do is explore this idea of this criminal fraternity where someone from the outside who is not a criminal at all, 36-year-old called Daniela, is dropped right smack in the middle of this and has to survive. And right. part of that came from a conversation I heard in a pub, which was I was... <laughs> Watching a game of football on a pub, and there was two men behind me, don't know them, and they were talking about money laundering. Right? <laughs> now, whether they were talking about it in the abstract, i.e., have you heard of it, or, as I deeply suspect, they were talking about it as a subject they were interested in, got me thinking. And, and the reason this came to the fore was Spain has had some real big property scandals over the years where people have been conned out of a lot of money for stuff that's never been built. I think it's happened happened all over the world, but that particularly happened a few big times in Spain, and that gave the germ of the idea of the book. (laughs) Well, hey, all the best ideas come from overhearing something in a pub, right? Yep, exactly. (laughs) So now you've written about Scotland, you've written about America, you've written about Spain, but obviously it all gets filtered through your Scottish sensibility. I mean... So many Scottish crime writers have become internationally famous. Do you think there is 
a certain uh, flavor to Scottish crime writing that's different from anywhere else? I would argue there is. Uh, one of the things, I don't know if you know, but I was one of the founding directors for a crime festival in Scotland called Bloody Scotland. Oh, yes. And so I was there 10 years ago when we started it. And one of the reasons we did that was we were aware of the fact that there was so many Scottish crime writers and nothing to celebrate them. But I think there's definitely a sense in a lot of the books, there's, there's, there's two things I always think. One is they're always quite dark. There's a darkness mm. there, but yes. it's, counter, it's counterpointed with humour. And, and the two of those put together are quite an awkward thing to put together. But in fairness, gallows humour, as you would call it, in Scotland, is quite normal. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Yes, I've, I've met many of them, and, and you're absolutely right. And uh, one of my favorite conversations I ever had at, uh, at a writer's convention was uh, talking to Katrina McPherson oh, and yeah. having her give me a, a long, long list of specifically Scottish insults <laughs> that, that are colorful <laughs> like nowhere else in the world. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit more about Bloody Scotland, this uh, festival that, that you were among the, the founders of that has uh, become very prestigious internationally. I mean, this is a destination that uh, crime writers want to go to. I myself, I'm, I'm dying to make it out there someday. You know, I've seen a lot of people from smaller markets, uh, you know, even smaller cities within the States or, or internationally that feel like, oh, I, we don't deserve it. I have to go to the big place in, in order to plant my flag and stuff but you guys said no no scotland is here we're, we might be small but we're we're worthy of yeah. an, an internationally recognized convention like this i mean do you guys have is it just a national pride that, that you took that's that said yeah. no no we're, we're worthy of being on the world stage uh, well i'll give you a little backstory and you can kind of understand it there's two authors in scotland lynn anderson and alex gray who you may have mm -hmm. heard of um they had been seeing for a while they used to go to harrogate to the the big, big crime festival at Theakston's Harrogate. And they noticed at the bar, as the as is Scottish writers once, at one o'clock in the morning, there was a fair number of Scottish writers still hanging <laughs> around, right? And then what happened is I had a meeting a couple of weeks later with Lynn, just sat down for a cup of coffee. And I remember uttering the words, how hard can this be? Right? I, rem I still remember <laughs> them. To this day, I remember those words. But, but the rationale for existence was actually rooted in Scottish writing, so it gave us a reason to be there. And, and we kind of said what we want to do is celebrate Scottish writing and promote new writing. That was the two things we wanted to do. And we were lucky. At the beginning, we got the right people on board. We got the support of Ian Rankin. We got the support of Al McDermott. We got a lot of good people onto the board. And, and we focused on saying, how do we celebrate Scottish crime writing but be inclusive? We were also naive. I'll be honest with you. We could have ran a day with half a dozen writers, but for the first weekend, we decided we'd have three streams running at the same time. We'd have one room that holds 700, another couple that hold 100. We do it over a weekend. And what's happened over the years is that we've kind of stayed true to our roots. So the thing we do is we're very much focused on Scottish writers, but we welcome in writers from all over the world. We've had fantastic writers from all over the planet come in coming down the line you're more than welcome to come across 
Well, all right. Uh, you heard it, folks. Uh, that was an open invitation. Uh, ne- <laughs> for, for next year, you're, you're going to send the plane and I'll uh, just hop on. <laughs> yeah, we have a biplane that we can hire. <laughs> I think it can hop via Greenland. If you're happy with that, then you're fine. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, uh, Morgan, Gordon, whatever, whatever we call you, it's uh, great to finally meet you. Uh, you know, we, we have shared a publisher in Down and Out Books uh, for, for a couple years now. So it's, it's great great to meet uh, someone else uh, in the fold. Uh, and congratulations on, on 31 Bones. Now, is this uh, the beginning of a series? Are we going to see more uh, set on this Spanish Costa del Crime? Yes, you are. Uh, the second book, which is going to be called Six Wounds, is out next April, May. Whether there's a third one, I don't know, but I have got an idea for a third one because the cast of characters allows me to play a lot with that. So it, it's great fun. Plus, it, it gives me one big benefit. I can try and claim some tax back for going to do research in Spain. <laughs> it sounds very legitimate to me. It is. You've got to do research, don't you? Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, Kate, I want to thank you so much for joining me and uh, commend you on an excellent job. I knew you would be good at this. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me and so much fun. Great Great chatting. Well, Her Three Lives is the latest, but uh, each one of your books promises suspense and secrets, uh, lies, uh, a murder or two. So uh, before we go, we're headed into summer. Uh, You going down the shore? No, but I am actually going out to your neck of the woods. I'm going to L.A. for a couple of weeks, so that'll be fun. And then I'm going to probably go back to Jamaica. We uh, we spent about a month in Jamaica in quarantine, which was which was great. So I have some family down there and I I try to get there as often as possible. All right. Well, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Writer Types. You can find out more about my books at ericbeatner.com. We always appreciate if you subscribe and rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. I'll be back soon with more writers. You guys can start making a, a big summer reading pile. These beach reads, which I've never understood. I think uh, I've, I'm advocate for reading anywhere and wherever you can. But for goodness sake, if you're going to the beach, be at the beach. Don't be don't be at the beach looking at a book. Oh, bite your tongue. Oh, Completely. That, really? <laughs> yes. How else are you going to tan? <laughs> You have to tan your back and that's, you know, you might as well look at a book. You can't see the screen, not with that sun. (laughs) All right. I'm in the minority here. (laughs) I'd I'd rather be in the water or playing volleyball or something. (laughs) All right. Well, Kate, thanks again for joining me. This was fantastic. Uh, And uh, you're going to be in LA. Look me up. We'll go have a coffee. Absolutely. All right. (laughs) Thanks so much, Aaron.